Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. We, we consider all of this as worship. And, and it's not just the singing that is the worship time, but it's, it's our time together in, in the morning in our classes as engaged in, in study of scripture and worship of God through our fellowship together, through our diving into God's word, through our discussion. All of this is worship because all of this is directed towards our relationship with the Lord. And worship is anything that is forming us towards who we ought to be towards a right mindset of who we are in relationship to God, but it's also how we are expressing that. And so we sing songs, we, we discuss, we open the word together, we give of our offering as an expression of who we are in relationship to God, but also to be formed into that. And so even this morning in Sunday school, as we looked at the story of, of the crossing of the Red Sea and the manna in the wilderness, you may have noticed that those stories have, have blended into the music for this morning that we've been singing. And all of this has been connected because we understand that, that all of this is a way it's in which we are hopefully being shaped more fully into the person, the people who God desires us to be. And also that we are then responding with an expression of this is who we are in relationship to God. So I hope that you know that. And, and I wanted to remind you of that this morning as we dive into God's word again in Exodus chapter 17. But before we turn there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we open your word together again this morning, we just ask that you open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. May we be sensitive to the things that your spirit is saying through these words so that we may better know you, that we may better respond to your faithfulness in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Exodus chapter 17 is where we're going to begin today. And again, if you were with us in Sunday school, we we looked at the crossing, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea and then and then the the subsequent events that happened after that. And so just as a recap, the Israelites were brought out. Last week we talked about the Passover. The Israelites were, were released from Pharaoh's grip in Egypt and they're sent out. And they begin wandering in the wilderness. Not wandering yet really. They're just on their way. And, and they come to the Red Sea. And God specifically directs them to the Red Sea. And they, and they stop and they camp there. And then all of a sudden Pharaoh decides to come chasing after them and they're, and they're trapped. And, and God miraculously delivers them through the Red Sea, saving them from the Egyptians. Immediately after that, they, they come and they camp to another place and they don't have any water. And God miraculously provides, they find, they finally find water, but it's not drinkable and God makes it drinkable. And then they begin to get hungry and, and they again are crying out to God. This is actually the third instance in which the people uh, what we're going to look at in chapter 17 here is the third instance in which the people are crying out to God. And so let's let's just dive right in. Exodus chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. If you remember, the, the Lord is leading them by a pillar of cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire by night. So the Lord is guiding them to each place. And so when it says, as the Lord commanded, this is this is how this is happening. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. 
Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in the front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And your Bible may have a footnote there that those two names, Massah and Meribah, mean testing and quarreling. So this place has given this name, really two names, of testing and quarreling because of the response of the Israelites in this moment. Um, as, we, as we dive into this story, so this is, as I said, this is the third time in which the Israelites are coming to Moses slash God. They, they come to Moses usually, but but the language implies that that they're also complaining to God through Moses. And Moses usually, as he does here, he quickly takes their complaint and takes it to God. This is the third time in which, in just these these few chapters, that the Israelites are coming and they're complaining to God. But this, but this moment is a little bit different in that, uh, in that here, the language in which their complaint is, is expressed is much more hostile than it has been in the in the past two. It's getting more violent. You you get the sense in the language, especially in the Hebrew, that that they're getting ready to riot. And Moses is afraid. He even says here, these people are ready to stone me. There's there's a, there's a level of hostility that is that has been ratcheted up a notch. That that these people are angry. And and they're looking they're looking for a solution. And the other thing I want us to, to pay attention to is that this, this story here actually becomes a key symbol and a, a key picture for, for the rebelliousness of the Israelites in the wilderness. This story in particular shows up again and again as, the, as a way in which this, this is sort of the last straw at, at some point, and it shows up again and again. I want to show you just a few passages. So turn, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to take a, take a look at two passages here in Deuteronomy and two in the Psalms. We could look at a, a bunch more, but we're just going to look at these, these few today. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here, this, in Deuteronomy, Moses is, is, is his final speech, and he's, he's, uh, reminding the people of things before he's going to die. And and so he's giving them final words. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse. let's just begin in verse 14. He says, Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massa. So again, here you have this, this moment of testing that, that Moses reminds them, this is when you put the Lord your God to the test. It wasn't necessarily the other time with the quail and the crossing of the Red Sea where you complained, but here at Massa, 
you're testing the Lord in a, in a different way. Uh, just just a chapter eight, just a couple pages over here. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse one. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here you have, we, we don't have the, the water, but we have the same idea of, of the testing of, here, here it is, it's not that, uh, the people were testing God, but God was testing the people with these trials and with, with what's going on. Now, Psalm chapter 78. Psalm chapter 78, starting in, let's, let's, for context, let's go all the way back to verse 12. He did miracles in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt in the region of Zoan. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand up like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought the streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. True, he struck the rock, rock and he gushed out and water gushed out. Streams flowed, this is verse 20. True, he struck the rock and water gushed out. Streams flowed abundantly, but can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? When the Lord heard them, he was furious. His fire broke out against Jacob and its wrath rose against Israel, for they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. Psalm 95. One more here. Psalm 95, verse verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, but though they had seen what I did, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I have declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So here you have these, these stories that show up again and again at this time where the Israelites are rebelling in the wilderness. And the, the, the testing of food and the testing of the water is, is joined together in this moment where, where the people are saying, where is God? Is he able to provide for us? What is God going to do for us, and this story becomes the symbol for the, for the discontent and the rebellion of Israel, this testing of God. And in, in Psalm 95, here the, the implication that the psalmist has is that the people the people are willfully hardening their hearts against what God is doing. They're willfully challenging God and His to provide, and the response is really is it's an outright revolt. And so we come to this this passage in Exodus chapter 17, and the language gets gets more hostile. But there's also something else I want to point out to you here that I I mentioned briefly back in Exodus chapter 17. This this story becomes a symbol of Israel's rebelliousness. They're getting hostile, 
But but there's also a bit of a reason for it. And there's a bit of a reason for for why they're getting upset. If you notice in in verse one again, the the Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. What do you notice about about how they ended up here? Who brought them there? Who brought them to a place where there was no water? God, right? God, God was bringing them. So we looked at the at the one verse in uh, in Deuteronomy where it said that God was actually testing them, and this is true. God is God is guiding them to this place to see what is what's going to happen, to see how they're going to respond. Here, it's not like they just accidentally showed up at a place it's like, oh, there's no water. What are we going to do? But God took them to this place and said, okay, how are you going to respond? Are you going to trust me? And we talked about this in our Sunday school class a little bit, that, that God is, is using these experiences in the wilderness to shape the people of Israel. He's, he has been using, the, the, the people of Israel have been in Egypt for 400 years, not really having a sense of who God is. They've been surrounded by the idolatry of the Egyptians. And they have probably had some memory of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. But they they don't have an allegiance to this God over any other gods. And so we we looked at last week the idea that, that God was using the way in which he delivered the people from Egypt as a way to not only show his power against the Egyptians, but also reveal his power to the Israelites and to show who he was and to, to invite them to trust him. And he intentionally guided them to this place along the Red Sea when the Egyptians pinning them in in order to again show them his ability to provide. And then he brings them out into the wilderness into a place where the, the water isn't drinkable. And he makes it drinkable. And then he brings them out to a place where they don't have enough food. And he provides food. And then he brings them to a place where they don't have water to drink. And the question is, how are you going to respond? You've seen God provide. You've seen God provide. You've seen God provide. You've seen God provide. And now, will you trust God to provide? And the response from the Israelites is not a response of, oh, we know that God can take care of this. But they're just getting angry, right? And and they're hostile and they're ready to stone Moses. They're going to kill him because they're so angry and, they're, and, and so they're testing. And so my question is, what is really going on here? What is this testing that, that we're being told that they did, that Moses said, here's where you tested God and tried his patience. What is different about what's going on here in this response? And I think, I think a key to this actually comes in, in the Gospel of Luke and the story of Jesus. So I want to invite you to turn there. And I think, I think Jesus' response here and the way that Jesus uses this passage gives us a clue to what the Israelites are actually doing here in their anger and their frustration. 
So Luke chapter 4, this is, this is the story of Jesus being tested in the wilderness. And so there, there are quite a, quite a bit of parallels between what's going on here in, uh, in Jesus' time in the wilderness and, and the Israelites. So we don't have time to take a look at all of them, but just, just a note, uh, one of the key things here is, is the first temptation that, that Satan brings to Jesus is, has to do with bread, has to do with food. Jesus is hungry. And the response is, how are you going to respond to this? And, and Jesus, Satan says, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus' response, which actually is a quote from Deuteronomy where, where Moses is talking about this story, is written, man does not live on bread alone. So there's these connections, these parallels here. But all the way down to the, to the final temptation here in, in Luke, verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus responds to this temptation of, of Satan. By quoting from this passage in Deuteronomy in which Moses is saying, don't test the Lord your God like you did at Massa. And I think this is, this passage is, is key for us because what is Satan trying to get him to do? He's trying, he, he brings Jesus up to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down because God has said he's going to provide for you. And so, so make him prove it. And, and test him. See, see if he will actually do. Can you manipulate God to act on your behalf in the way that you want him to act? And so you're taking this extra risk. You're throwing yourself off this thing, expecting God to do. And you're trying to get God to step in and do something that you want him to do. And I think this is really what is going on in the testing and why there's so much hostility and why this story becomes such a picture for for the rebelliousness of the Israelites. It's not just that they are, it's not that they're worried about where the water is going to come from. What is more likely that's happening is that they, they are trying to manipulate God to act in the way that they think is best. And so their grumbling, their anger, their hostility is, is trying to get God to to step out of his own sovereignty and take control and say, God, here's what you need to do in this situation. Here's how you need to respond. Here's how you need to provide. They've seen God's faithfulness. And so now they're trying to manipulate God's faithfulness to act on their behalf. And so rather than just coming and and looking for God to act and saying, Moses, how is God going to provide in this time? They're pressuring and they're pushing. They're saying, God, come on, you gotta, you got to keep turning out tricks for us. you got to keep doing it the way that we expect it to happen. And so this is where Moses' anger, or God's anger, comes out. He says, uh, Moses cries out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? And God comes and he says, back in Exodus chapter 17, go out, strike the rock. And the question, the question that the people have, and this is what Moses tells us at the end, is their question is really, is the Lord really among us or not? 
there's a level of of pressuring. Is okay, is is God really here still? Is God really gonna keep acting on our behalf? We have we have the story in which they have been being led by this pillar of cloud, by this pillar of fire. They've seen God's presence again and again and again and again, and they come to this place and they say, Well, God's not really here with us. Because if God was really here with us, he'd be taking care of us again. And they've seen his presence show up again and again and again, and yet they come and they say, all right, prove it again, God. Show me, show me what you got this time. And there's this testing of it's never enough. It's never quite enough that what God has provided up until this point. And so we need to see him prove it again and again and again and again. So there's no, there's no faith. There's no, we talked this morning, there's no, uh, there's no memory of God's faithfulness. There's no reminder and there's no looking back and saying, here's how God has provided. It's just, okay, what do you got next for me, God? What, what are you gonna do for me today? What are you gonna do for me tomorrow? Doesn't matter what you've done in the past. How are you gonna provide today? There's this attempt to manipulate God. There's an attempt to take over his sovereignty and say, God, here, here is what I believe is best and here's how you need to act. And there's a doubting of God's presence. So I, as I reflect on this passage, I, I wonder what is this, what does this testing look like for us? What does it look like for us to say, to put the Lord to the test. And what is the challenge for us as Christians today? What are the ways in which we try to step in and manipulate God? Sometimes I think it comes from just ignoring God's presence. So it would be what we would call like a functional atheism. That we would say, yes, I believe in God, and I know these things are true, but the way that we operate on a day-to-day basis Ask the question, is God really here among us? Is God really acting among us? And this shows up in all kinds of uh, fears and doubts and questions of when we get, we get consumed by the circumstances around us and the danger, the, the stories, the, the fear, and we allow those things to be the stories that drive us. And we say, where, we, we may not even ask the question, where is God? Because we're not even thinking that God might show up. We're not even thinking or pretending that God might possibly be able to, to step in and have control in a situation. We're not even acting as though God is powerful enough to change what's going on in my life. We just ignore Him and we think, I have to do this myself. I have to take care of this on my own. I have to step in and if, if it's, if it's, if it doesn't, if I can't do anything about it, then nothing's going to change. And when we rely on our own strength and our own power, we don't even pretend that God can do, can do it. We don't even pretend that God is there. So we ask this question, or, or we ignore the question, is God really among us? We just say, he's probably not. We distrust whether he can intervene. We act as though the solutions depend on us alone. Uh, 
choose what we feel is the best solution versus what God has said. I want to invite you to turn one last passage. Actually, not the last one, but uh, Colossians chapter 1 and 2. Colossians chapter 1. We have this passage that, that my Bible has a heading that this is the supremacy of the Son of God. And this, this passage really speaks of the, the power and the work of, of Christ. Verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. This passage speaks to the power and supremacy of Christ. That all things, all that we see, all that we know, all that we experience are held together by Christ. It says, whether things visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all of these things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This passage speaks to the power of Christ, not someday. Not someday this will be true about Christ, but today that Christ is in control and has sovereignty today in your life, in my life. In our world. That God is active and moving and operating. And inviting us to trust and to see that this this is the world in which we currently operate. And oftentimes what we what we tell ourselves is the reality is a God is a story in which our God may someday be powerful. May someday be active. May someday do something about the sin that we see in our world or the danger that we see around us. But the invitation of Colossians is is for us to see that this is the world that we live in now. That God is present and active, holding all things together. That doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. There won't be danger and things that that evil is still acting in our world. But like the Israelites in the wilderness pinned between the Egyptians and the Red Sea, God was not absent in that moment. He was active and he was working. And when the Israelites were hungry, God was not absent in that moment. He was ready to provide. And with the Israelites were thirsty. God was not absent in that moment, but he was ready to provide. And we're invited to see a world and to operate in a world in which Christ is supreme today, that he is not absent, 
in the midst of our fears. He is not absent in the midst of our danger, but he is present and active and working. And Paul says even here in, in verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. He's able to rejoice in the midst of his suffering. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. That's a whole other study. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing, teaching everyone with all wisdom, so we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And here, I want you to notice this in verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All of these things that we've just talked about, about the power and supremacy of Christ, Paul says that for for you Christians, this power and supremacy of Christ isn't somewhere out there to be tapped into, but it's it's in you. He is is dwelling within you. His power rests within you now. The this power of Christ working in you so that you can actively understand that God is working not only somewhere else but in your life today. And what often happens is we get so caught up in whatever other stories are happening around us in our world. And maybe it's the stories that are taking place within our within where we work. Maybe it's the stories that are happening on the media. Maybe it's the stories that are happening at school. Maybe it's the stories that are happening in our families and, and there's danger and there's fear and, and all we have eyes to see is the fact that there's no water here in front of us. And we think God must be absent. God can't possibly be providing. God can't possibly do anything about this situation. And, and we throw up our hands and say, what are we going to do? Or I have to do this on my own. But to recognize and to understand that God is not only active in our world, but is active in our lives. And to look to him and to to put our trust and our faith in him to work in our lives again is the invitation of Colossians. To know that God is active. So the story of Israelites testing becomes the symbol of their rebelliousness, becomes the symbol of their testing of God. But I want to show you a couple of things here. I want to go back to some of these verses that we've looked at. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to flip. We're going to be in Deuteronomy, and then if you want to stick a finger in Psalm 78 on your way to Deuteronomy, we're going to go there next. As I, as I think about my own tendency towards asking this question, is God really among us? 
my own failure to, to trust in the midst of my own worries. I, I take comfort in, in the way that this story is also remembered by the Israelites. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. Jump to Psalm chapter 78. Psalm chapter 78, verse, we looked at this already, but again, verse 15, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. And then one more, Psalm 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary. Israel, his dominion. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains leaped like rams. The hills like lambs. Why was it, sea, that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, mountains, did you leap like rams? You hills like lambs. Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. One of the things that we see in the midst of this story that has become and become seared on the consciousness of the Israelites as their failure, is that also this story shows up again and again as a reminder of God's faithfulness. A reminder that God was present with them in the wilderness. A reminder that God was acting on their behalf. And I think this is significant that this story becomes both a symbol of their failure and God's faithfulness. Because oftentimes we think that our own failure is going to result in God abandoning us, right? We think if I can't get this right, how could, how could, how could I possibly be loved? How could anybody ever want to stick with me when I mess up here and here and here? And yet the reminder of God, the reminder of this story, is that even in their rebelliousness, even in their failure, God was faithful. And the story of Exodus continues, and we'll see this in the coming weeks, that God continues to be faithful despite the repeated failings of the Israelites. And for me, this is a comforting reminder that when when I ignore God, when I pretend like He's not there, when I pretend like I have to do it all on my own, when I when I act as though He's somewhere else, not really concerned, uh, that doesn't mean that He actually is. And that even in my faithlessness, even when I rely on my own strength, God is still faithful. And he's still working and active in my life. And and I can't remember. Let me look at these words here. I remember this. I was struck by this as we. Sorry, I have to go back to this. Uh, as we sang, "Come, ye sinner," he says, 
verse 3 here says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. And so often we think we have to somehow become fit for God's love. And we have to get ourselves into a right position to, to show God that we have earned his favor. But all that he is requiring is for us to let go. And that he is faithful even in the midst of our faithlessness. That he is working, that he is active, that he is present. And to me this is good news because the story of the Israelites, I don't, we should, we've talked about this every, it seems like every week in my Sunday school class. It's so easy to look at Moses and the Israelites and say, what's wrong with these people, right? Like, they have God's presence right there. He's working. He's active. And yet, according to Colossians, we have God's presence not in a cloud, but within us. And yet, it's so easy for us to ignore it and to forget that God is working. And somehow we we read these stories and say, if I was there, I wouldn't I wouldn't have rebelled like that. Yes, you would have. <laughs> of course, we would have. Like what? What makes us think that we're so special and so much better that that we wouldn't? I mean, you have Moses standing before the burning bush, and God speaking to him, and and Moses is like, I can't do that. I don't want to. I don't want to go. And we somehow think that if we were there before the burning bush, we would have been like, yeah, sure. Okay, God, what do you want me to do? I don't think so. And yet the reminder here is that even in, in that weakness, even in our ability to get it wrong again and again and again and again, God is faithful. And, and our prayer this morning is that you may know God's faithfulness in the midst of your own weakness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, uh, again, for your word. Just these stories of testing and trial and and struggle on, on behalf of the Israelites. And as we said, it's so easy to look at those stories and, and cast judgment or blame and wonder how they could have missed it. And yet, in our own lives, it's so easy to miss the ways that you are working. And so we we thank you for your faithfulness in the midst of that, in the midst of our weaknesses, in the midst of our lack of trust. And we just ask for eyes to see the ways that you are working among us. We ask for a stronger memory and a faith to the things that you have already done in our lives so that we may celebrate those things and have confidence moving forward that you have been faithful and you will continue to be faithful. Pray this in your name. Amen. Yes, for our last song. What can wash away my sin? My righteousness? No. My opinion? No. My Facebook posts? No, <laughs> nothing but the blood of Jesus. As we as we close, Colossians chapter one again, verses nineteen and twenty. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's our prayer this morning. It's my prayer that you may know the work has been accomplished through the cross, that reconciliation is happening, that the fullness of God dwelt in Christ, accomplishing your salvation. Making peace and reconciliation not just for you, but for all things. That this reconciliation is available to you, it's available to your neighbors, it's available to your co-workers, uh, to our politicians, uh, to, to our world. That this is the world in which we live, in which Christ's work has accomplished salvation and makes it available to all people Regardless of your own faithlessness, God is faithful. May you know his faithfulness this week.